0: What's the story with a U.S. chiropractor who got so fed up with how medicine is practiced that he got out of medicine, went to Harvard, ended up in the Netherlands, and is now back into medicine? We'll find out more on this episode of Shift Shapers.
1: Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs. Have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change you want to see. This episode is brought to you by Shift Shaper Strategies. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. Clarify your message so you win more clients, crush your sales goals, and build your practice. Learn more at ShiftShaperStrategies.com. And now, here's your host. Story brand certified guide and chief transformation strategist at Shift Shaper Strategies, David Saltzman.
0: You know, we hear people say all the time that the healthcare system in the United States is broken. And my answer to that is no, it's not. It's basically working exactly the way it was designed by the people who designed it. Now, that may not be great for us as patients or for some physicians or many physicians as practitioners, but that's the system we've got right now. And we thought it would be interesting to talk to someone who's been kind of through that gamut and come out the other side in a very different place in the world, but in a different way. And so we invited Frank Sutter to join us today. Frank, for the last eight years, has been the Associate Director of Healthcare Initiative at Harvard Business School. He's also a chiropractor and a wonderfully nice fellow, and he's agreed to share his story with us. So welcome, Frank.
2: Great. Thank you for
0: having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Talk a little bit about, and I think it's worthwhile, your journey and kind of how you ended up where you are.
2: Sure. I'm always happy to talk about my story. I, as you've knowledge, I spent the past eight years at Harvard Business School in what we call the Healthcare Initiative. And that department is really looking to find the best ways to innovate in healthcare management and what can we do to close the gap on the health outcomes in the U.S., how do we increase access to care, and how do we decrease costs? And, you know, this the mission of the Healthcare Initiative really resonated with me because prior to that, I spent about 8 years running a integrative clinical practice in Chicago i had gone to a chiropractic medical school outside of chicago and was excited to launch my clinic you know as you can imagine you know launching your own business it's like launch it's like having a baby you know it's it takes a lot of blood sweat and tears to nurture it and grow it and i had a lot of challenges as all entrepreneurs do, starting a business and scaling it, growing it, and all the growing pains that go with it. So for me, one of the greatest aspects of it was working with patients one-on-one and being able to run my own clinic. I was able to work with patients in a way that I didn't have to answer to anybody. I didn't have shareholders. I didn't have a large medical oversight looking down on me, I could spend as much time as I needed to with each patient to make a change in the trajectory of their health and well-being. And in my experience, the, the greatest aspect of that is just spending time listening to patients. We don't get a lot of that, you know, with most of our healthcare practitioners. So I really relished the time I was able to spend with each patient, and it could be anywhere from a half hour to an hour, depending on their need, really. And the challenge was insurance companies don't necessarily love to reimburse based on time. And this was a sort of a growing problem that I had with a lot of the insurance companies I worked with. And with being a chiropractor, I was also practicing in a way that wasn't typical. So I was people were presenting with all sorts of constitutional problems from digestive issues, chronic skin conditions, menstrual issues, chronic migraines. And so I would take a, what we call a functional medical approach, which would be looking at their diet, their sleep habits, their hobbies, their work, the way they manage stress. All of that factors in. And, you know, we've got great results with the patients, but again, over time, insurance companies were reimbursing less and less. And you know, one interesting thing I noticed, you know, when I first started my practice in 2008, the collections were about 90% were insurance reimbursements and about 10% was out-of-pocket payments from the patients themselves, whether that was their copay or their co-insurance or deductibles. By the time I sold my practice to a physician group, About seven years later, that had almost completely reversed. And it was 90% patient paying out of pocket and 10% insurance reimbursement. And that happened because of the introduction of high deductible health plans, people having upwards of $5,7500 deductibles. And it became challenging to treat. The patients that really needed the kind of care that I was looking to provide and that my team was looking to provide. So it became an ethical rub for me over time that we were targeting wealthier people. We were targeting the companies that had insurance plans with very small deductibles. And I was like, this is wrong. Like, this is not what healthcare should be about, and I don't feel good about this. You know, we had very real expenses to pay, from overhead of running a clinic on Michigan Avenue in Chicago, to paying staff, and, you know, of course, my initial investment to become a doctor, you know, that was upwards of almost 200,000 student loans. So, but I was like, this doesn't feel good, you know, and I've shared with a lot of people over the years that nothing felt better than making money, helping people. And at the same time, nothing felt ickier than making money, helping people, and I never could reconcile that. So some part of me was always envious of those that could just, you know, get the patients in, get them in, get them out, get them in, get them out. And it was a numbers game, and I just I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. So I had the opportunity to sell my practice, as I said, and saw that what the opportunity was at... Harvard Business School's healthcare initiative and, you know, the amazing team of faculty there and thought I could help people in a better way, you know, by addressing that that healthcare triad of improving outcomes, reducing costs, and increasing access to care. So, and then, you know, more recently, I've moved to the Netherlands and now live in Amsterdam. And interestingly, the healthcare system is just set up very differently here, and you know everybody, it's 100% insurance here, everybody has to have insurance, uh, so it's a little, I think Obamacare was a little bit tied to the way that the Netherlands has it, where everybody has to pay a certain amount, it's not 100% free, but there's not a lot of the challenging aspects of being a provider, such as HIPAA and the insurance reimbursement system is extremely different here. So it feels much more welcoming to be a provider in the Netherlands than, than it was for me, and I can only speak for myself, but than it was for me in the U.S. So that's where I'm at now, sort of exploring clinical practice here and getting that off the ground while still working with the healthcare initiative at Harvard Business School.
0: It's a great story. Talk to me a little bit about some of the work that you guys were doing at Harvard and kind of what goes on in, in that healthcare initiative.
2: Sure. So we look at our constituents in the healthcare initiative, and those are students who are looking to go into a healthcare management career, and that's anywhere in the healthcare sector. So that could be anything in life sciences, pharma, biotech, medical devices, diagnostics, digital health, of course, payers, and various types of insurance models. So there's and healthcare entrepreneurship. So there's many different avenues for students to explore when they're looking to go into, again, a management role. And so then we also support our alumni. We know we have over 8,000 alumni around the world who have a healthcare focus in their career. So we create opportunities to connect alumni with students, to connect alumni with, you know, potentially if they're investors, they're trying to, they're trying to commercialize some sort of an innovation in healthcare, can we introduce them to venture capital can we make introductions to investors and whatnot? And then of course we have faculty. So there's about 280 faculty at Harvard Business School. About 80 of them have a relatively solid interest in healthcare. And twenty of them, it's like almost they're really their focus. They really just focus a lot of their research around healthcare. So our role was to how do we communicate the research that the faculty are conducting? And how do we get it out there to the, the operators in healthcare, to other educational institutions uh, to help make a difference, to truly make a difference in healthcare? So that's a chunk of it with you know some of the faculty, you know, a lot of people know Regina Hertzlinger. She's been dubbed by Money Magazine, the godmother of consumer driven healthcare. You know, she's a force of you know, the consumer needs to be in the driver's seat of their health care. And not simply do as the doctor tells you to do and just accept it. So, that's an area that she's made a lot of strides in. And, you know, she's worked very closely with a lot of, with I think, most, several of the most recent presidential administrations on health policy and what can we do to really improve what's going on in the American healthcare system. Other faculty, such as Limor Daphne, she has done a lot of research in consolidation in healthcare. You know, we see a lot of mergers and acquisitions, and there's this notion that, oh, it's going to drive down costs. And what her research is showing, actually, is that if there are any cost savings, it is not passed down to the consumer, which in this case is often the patient, of course. So that's fascinating. You know, so we have other faculty looking at impacts on global health, digital health, innovation in all of these areas. So again, our role is what can we do to boil that message down and get it in front of the right people to help, again, improve healthcare across the diaspora in the U.S. system.
1: And now, a word from our sponsor. It's a fact. Salespeople and organizations lose opportunities because they don't clearly communicate their value. In today's market, your story is your message. It should be crystal clear, perfectly arranged, and precisely targeted to attract the clients you want. As a certified story brand guide, we use the exclusive SB7 process to create that story and the websites and collateral that deliver it. If your message isn't cutting through the noise, we can help. Visit us at ShiftShaperStrategies.com to learn how we can help you find, clarify, and deliver a message that wins clients, crushes sales goals, and builds your practice. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. So learn more and schedule that call today at Shiftshaperstrategies.com. That's ShiftShaperStrategies.com. And now, back to our discussion.
0: I don't think that there are too many examples of places where fewer players in a market means lower costs. And I think you'd be hard-pressed to find that. And as far as, as Reggie is concerned, she is indeed the godmother of consumer-directed healthcare, care, and she is a force of nature and just a wonderfully nice person besides that.
2: Oh, yeah, she's brilliant.
0: For an accountant, she does a lot of really interesting work. One of the things that you said I thought was intriguing, and it's kind of juxtaposed, is you weren't really comfortable in that cash practice kind of medicine. And yet, in the United States, what's starting to take Root is a concept I think the American Academy of Pediatrics came up with maybe 15 years ago. Called it. Then it was called medical home. Now it's called primary, direct primary care. And those are, by and large, cash practices because you, they're not considered, at least at this moment, insurance in the States. That's growing, and, and it, it does seem to provide for those folks who are in it, those physicians who are in it, a uh, kind of practice life like the one to which you aspired, what you had in your head. So it, it's interesting. How do you juggle those two constructs, the idea of having a cash-based practice, but yet that freeing you up to be able to practice the way you had envisioned when you were in medical school?
2: And that is, that's what we're seeing with some of these concierge models, you know, concierge medicine, people paying a subscription to have access to their care provider. And that subscription allows the provider to to put a cap on how many patients are in their Rolodex, that I can't speak intelligently about the the numbers, but it allows the physician to greatly reduce. And therefore, you know, if your child is sick, you can call your doctor and get a same-day appointment, or even a next-day appointment, or at least have a phone call with your doctor that day, and possibly even an email exchange. And it's all part of that subscription. So it's... You know, I think there's it's not necessarily the right option for everybody, and it's going to exclude people of a certain socioeconomic status. So it's not, I don't think it's the the perfect solution across the board, but for a significant portion of the population that can afford it, it is a great way to, I really think, improve health outcomes and keep providers in care delivery. Because we see a huge exodus of, primary care physicians leaving healthcare because they're tired. You know, I was one of them. You know, when I'm tired of dealing with insurance, tired of dealing with all of the red tape, all of the documentation needed, you know, the, the amount of sleep I lost about, you know, from all the ways I could get sued, you know, is our documentation does it support clinical care for that CPT code used in the insurance claim? You know, it's like, oh gosh, I don't know. Did we violate HIPAA? I don't know. So it was all these these fears that that weigh on providers. And so this this, this sort of concierge model, I think, if, if I understood you correctly, if that's where you're going with this, I think that's one way to again improve the the everyday sense of well being by the doctor because. If the doctor is stressed, it's going to impact the outcomes of the patient, you know, so.
0: No question. I mean, I think, you know, I'm familiar with, well familiar with three direct primary care docs, And the way they get around, to use your highfalutin Harvard medical term, the ickiness of it, which is a great term, because it is kind of icky, or it can be, is they price their practice so that they take a certain amount of pro bono patients as well. And I guess that makes them feel that they're being a little more egalitarian in in their intake and whatnot. question for you, kind of zooming around a little bit, but you talked a little bit about health insurance in the Netherlands. How is that funded and how is that paid? And what does insurance look like there? Do you have out-of-pockets and deductibles and co-pays and whatnot to kind of put a break on utilization, or is it just y'all come?
2: So I'm still wrapping my head around it, so I'm not the expert on it, but everybody has to have it, and everybody pays a monthly premium into their plan. Most of the time, insurance, uh, your employers will provide insurance similar to the U.S., but there's also a lot of self-employed individuals here. So that creates, you know, or independent contractors. So that creates another challenge, you know, in the US it was it was actually, you know, before the Affordable Care Act, you just you really couldn't buy insurance. You just if you didn't have a job with an employer, you didn't have health insurance. I was one of those people. I didn't have insurance for over 10 years.
0: Well, there was an individual market, but it was expensive.
2: It was unattainable because who are the ones that don't have insurance? It's people who don't have jobs. And it's people who are underemployed. You have a couple part time jobs. You know, you can't put out eight eight hundred thousand dollars a month at that, you know, with that. So it was a real challenge and which is why there were so many unemployed or uninsured individuals. Uh, here it's much more accessible. And you know, I've actually had to go to the emergency room. I cut my hand open putting an Ikea cabinet together, and, you know, we wound up getting, I guess we had a small deductible, and we had to pay about 100 100 euro out of pocket, but it was pretty minimal, and so it is different here. I I see a difference in preventive medicine. You know, here I hear a lot of the Dutch talk, and they'll say, you know, the doctors all say the same thing, you know, you know, whatever your problem is, take some paracetamol, which is basically acetaminophen, the Tylenol, take some paracetamol and give it a week, and, you know, let us see what happens. Mm. So, I've witnessed that too. And I was like, huh, you know, so I had (laughs) to beg my doctor to to test my cholesterol. And I was like, I've got a history of high cholesterol. Please, please, please. And, you know, he was like, you're not over 50. I can't, you know, I can't do it. But after begging and begging. uh, Is
0: that government mandated or is that just standard practice there?
2: It's really standard practice. I Uh I don't think it's government mandated because if it were, I imagine he wouldn't have been able to budge. But it was I just I had to like really like advocate for myself and so those are some of the differences I see where they, they don't they don't have the same fear of defensive medicine, which uh-huh. is testing everybody for everything all the time always so they don't get sued for missing it you know missing a diagnosis. so that's yeah, defensive medicine, which is of course very expensive yeah. for insurance companies and you know that's not the right approach either. So they, they have they are very quite mindful of that here.
0: Interesting and a a great place to end our conversation for today. I do hope you'll come back after you've, if you set up your practice and you get going and whatnot, we'd love to talk to you and and learn more about, you know, your impressions of that system versus what's going on here in uh, the lower 48 or the Eastern 48.
2: Sure, that'd be great. I'd love to.
0: Anyway, Frank Sutter, Associate Director of the Healthcare Initiative at Harvard Business School and a chiropractor and someone who's Gaining experience in yet another area. Frank, thanks so much for sharing your expertise with the audience. I appreciate it.
2: And thank you for having me. Have a wonderful day.
1: The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Shift Shaper Strategies and may not be reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without our express written permission. Copyright 2020, all rights reserved.